Hey, pray with me. Father, we, uh, we worship you. We love you. We take a moment to just be still in your presence. You are so good. Father, I thank you that you are so faithful. You never leave us. You never forsake us. Even when we feel lonely, your truth says you're with us. Father, we choose not to trust in our feelings, but we choose to trust in your word that's a light to our feet. Father, we thank you that throughout this whole last year and a half of pandemic that you have provided. Father, we thank you that you have healed in the middle of a storm and that you're a God who's very close to his people and wants to be close to his people and wants to have all that we are. And so, Father, today as we dive into your word, we ask that you would speak to us clearly and in a powerful way. Father, would you communicate your word in the way that only you can? By the power of your spirit, Lord, would you do only what you can in our lives? Would you convict us but encourage us and challenge us? And Father, would you allow us to live the life every day, just a little bit more, the life that you've called us to live? And most importantly, allow us to be the people that were called to be in you. We love you and we worship you and your name and pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen and amen. Amen. Well, praise the Lord. Are you ready? We're going to jump right in. Exodus chapter 20, verses 4 through 6. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of their parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. Verse six, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commands. Today's sermon, what I've titled it, and I'll explain it as we move through it, but I've titled today's sermon, Copy and Paste God. Copy and Paste God. And as we've been in a series called The Ten Commandments, we've been going through the different commandments week by week and talking about how these commandments, our principles, are a map for us to live the life that God has called us to live in him. These commandments were written by the finger of God thousands of years ago, but yet they're still relevant and powerful for today. And I'm kind of giving us a quick moment of whiplash because if you've been here over the past weeks, we have been through the first several commandments. And last week we talked about the Sabbath, right? How we're to rest in God and not just find our rest in vacation, which listen, I love going on vacation, but find our rest ultimately in God. 
that God ultimately gives us the rest that we as human beings need. And today we're jumping back to the second commandment, which talks about idolatry. And a lot of times we read the first and the second commandment and we can kind of pair them together and um, say, well, they're just kind of meshed in together. They don't, you know, they're kind of saying the same thing. Let's move on to the other ones. But I want to be really clear with you this morning that the first and, first and second commandment are connected, but they are talking about different things. The first commandment is dealing with who we worship, who we worship. And the second commandment is dealing with how we worship, who we worship and how we worship. And just for you artists and creative people in the room, let me put you at ease. You may have read this and say, okay, I got to go home and throw out all my sketchbooks and all my, you know, paintings of, the, of nature because this verse, you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on earth. Okay, I guess I got to find another hobby. Let me put you at ease. It doesn't have to do with artwork. You can enjoy your art freely. And we know this because we see in Exodus chapter 26, we see that God actually commands Israel to craft images of angels. And so obviously, one of the most important rules when we read and understand scripture is that scripture, this is super important when you're studying Christians, when you're reading the word of God and you read something that seems contradictory to you, to something else in scripture. Let me give you a piece of advice. Scripture always defines scripture. Scripture always gives us the context for more scripture. And so when I read something, whether it's in the gospels or I read something in the Old Testament that doesn't seem like it matches up with the New Testament, we need to make sure that we're reading it in the whole context of scripture and never just taking one verse alone without understanding the verses before it and the verses after it. Can I tell you what happens when you take verses out of scripture, out of context, and you read it alone? Heresy. Oftentimes, some of the most misunderstood or misaligned beliefs that kind of come out of Christianity come out of us taking one verse with not without understanding how this verse fits in with all the other verses in the Bible. An amazing example of this is in the political cycle. Man, the, in politics, as brutal as it was, people would take one statement from any party, plaster it on a headline and say, this is what they said. But it's important to always understand because all of us can say things that people could put on a headline and say, well, that was really... That's really not what I meant. We need to understand the context. Are you tracking with me? So the big idea here out of these verses, four through six, the big overarching simplified idea for us about what type of worship we need to do is this. Worship God his way, not your way. Let me be really clear. Everything that I talk about this morning is going to be soaked in that statement. Worship God in his way, not in your way. 
I remember I, when I was at Moody Bible Institute, I studied four years there, and I was in one of my classes that trained us on missions and how to reach people for Christ. And our assignment in one of these classes was to go to a temple or a religious kind of sanctuary or, or place of worship and to experience a, another religion's worship service, pretty much. And the teacher made very clear, your job, young, zealous Christians, is not to go and argue with them. Uh, this is not a place to just go and hammer them down about why you, their beliefs are wrong. This is a chance for you to try to understand what other people think and experience what they experience. So I went to a temple, uh, a Hindu temple downtown, and I went to, I believe, their evening service with a couple of buddies of mine. We went into this service to learn, and we sat down, and I remember we were like the only ones there, but I remember, you know, every room has like a, a feel to it. Every place that you go to, there's, you know, you step in, you go into somebody's house, and you're like, you, you learn something about them, right? Maybe you learn that they're messy, Maybe you learn that they're artistic. And when I went into this Hindu temple, it was one of the biggest ones. The other big one is in Lamont. When I went into this temple, we sat down and we talked to their priest or leader of their worship, and he ran us through this long, like, hour, hour and a half service. And there's all these pictures all over the walls of all of their different gods, and at the front of the room is this kind of um, almost like a fountain with a thing that's coming out of the middle of it. And, and, and so the whole service, he's singing chants and, you know, singing different songs, saying different things in their language, in their native tongue, pouring, I, I believe it was milk or some type of liquid on top of this. And I'm experiencing a worship setting uh, that's very different than mine. And let me say a side note it's kind of unrelated, but a side note, it's interesting. We weren't supposed to ask too many questions, but the service finishes, and I know enough about Hinduism to ask you a couple questions. I said, so let me ask you a question about your beliefs. Uh, you know, thanks for allowing us to be here. Thanks for being so kind to us. So let me ask you a question about your beliefs. I said, um, so you guys believe in reincarnation? He said, yeah, we believe in reincarnation. I said, he was pointing to the different gods and their different meanings and the different pictures and how it added to the whole room. And I asked him, I said, so let me ask you this. You believe in reincarnation. So when somebody dies and then they come back in the next life, can they come back as an inanimate object? In other words, can they come back as something that's not living? Like a rock, specifically, I said. I said, because you kind of mentioned this. And, um, you know, this is the main guy. And he speaks to me. He says, well... Yeah, you can come back as a ride, come back as a tree, come back as a couple different things. And I said, well, that's really confusing because how can somebody come to Hinduism, die, become a rock, and then how can a rock choose to be a Hindu again? And he looked me in the eye, gave me some answer that didn't make any sense. Then we shook hands and we walked out of there. And we had to write this whole paper and reflect on the whole experience. And one of the things that I walked away with, besides just that conversation, was I remember writing in my notes, thinking about how different this environment was that I was worshiping in, even compared to the sanctuary like this that I've grown up in. As you look around the room, even in this room, and take a moment to look around the room, 
You don't see a bunch of pictures on the walls of different saints or religious people that lived or different pictures of God on the wall. And we worship in a very different way. We ultimately are supposed to worship God in the way that he wants us to. And that way that we worship God, are you tracking with me, may be very different than other religions and how they worship their gods that are around us. In Exodus, several chapters after uh, chapter 20, we see that God is up at the mountain. He's getting the Ten Commandments. God's writing uh, on the tablet. Uh, He's with Moses up on the mountain. And the people get impatient and they get tired of waiting for Moses to come back down the mountain. And Exodus chapter 32, verse 4 says this. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and they said, listen to this, come make us gods who will go before us. Remember, this was not the final resting place of Israel. Israel was called to what? The promised land. And so they're getting anxious. They're tired of waiting for Moses, who's been up at the mountain with God for a long time. And they said, Aaron, we don't know when Moses is coming back. And we want you to come and we want you to make us a God who will go before us. And they actually refer to Moses as this, as for this fellow Moses who brought us out of Egypt. We don't know what has happened to him. And I don't know about you, but I heard this story many times when I was growing up. And every time I heard this story, I always thought that the Israelites in growing impatient went and then created of like a false God. They went to go worship, you know, they created, you know, a cow and then they worship Baal. But that's actually not what happened here. Aaron made this golden calf, and he made the golden calf in the image of the God of Israel. Are you tracking with me? God, Aaron came, was pressured by the people, and he didn't make a God that he remembered from the land of Egypt. No, he didn't do that. He made this golden calf as a symbol of the God Yahweh who had revealed himself to them and had also freed them from Israel because the people wanted to worship God in the same way that the nations around them worshiped. We see this cross-reference in Scripture. If you're, if you're doubting me, we see it in cross-reference in Scripture in Nehemiah 9.18. And in verse 32, verse 4, Aaron says, These are your gods, Israel. Think about the craziness of this statement that Aaron is making to the people of Israel. Think about how insulting this is to Almighty God himself. God has taken them from the land of Egypt, he's freed them and they make an image of him 
modeled after a calf. And Aaron brings it to the people after he melts all their gold and says, these are your gods, Israel. This is who took you out of slavery in Egypt. And then goes on to build an altar and says, tomorrow will be a festival to the Lord. I want to make clear what this commandment is saying. It's talking about worshiping God his way, not our way. But I want to be really clear in what it's forbidding. It's forbidding two different things. Number one, it's forbidding that we are not to make images to represent God in any form. Let me say that again. The first thing that this commandment is forbidding is we are not to make images to represent God in any form. The second thing it's forbidding is we are not to worship images of any kind. And once again, this worship of images or this making of images is not just foreign gods. Oftentimes when we read this, we think of the Hindu temple and they have the statues and they have the pictures all over and people are praying to them and we think, got it. I don't have any Hindu pictures in my, I don't have any foreign African gods in my house. Got it. I kind of checked this one clear. But it's not just images of other gods or false gods, but it's also forbidden to worship images of the one true God. And in this time, Aaron is attempting to visually represent God. And ultimately, the people have chosen their own way to worship God instead of waiting to worship God in the way that he wanted them to. The people of Israel wanted to touch their God. The people of Israel wanted to see their God. But how many of us know that our faith is not about touching? It's not about seeing a physical representation. It's about trusting in the words of God. There will be times, Christians, where you feel like God is not near to you. And you can't look around in your house or your bedroom or your workplace and see a physical representation of God. But let me tell you, that doesn't mean that God is not with you. Just because you don't see a physical representation of God doesn't mean that God has abandoned you. A lot of different religions, a lot of different ways that people live their life, they have images of other gods that make them feel close to their God, that make them feel like my God is listening, that make them feel like he, uh, their, their God is, 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 is close to them. But we as Christians don't need symbols and are prohibited from symbols. And God has called us to trust his word. That God's word is his revelation and self-revelation of himself. And so with this commandment, let me say this, this commandment is pretty simple to understand, kind of straightforward. Like we get what the what is, right? Uh, don't have, uh, don't make an image of God and also don't worship, um, uh, don't worship images and also don't make 
images. Okay, got it. But as you study this, and as I was studying this, the question I kept asking myself is, why? Okay, God, I get it. Um, you don't want me to have a symbol of you or a statue of you or, or something like that that represents you that I kind of go to as my connection point to you. But my, ask, my question as I study this is, why, God? What's the big deal with uh, creating an image of you? What's the big issue with having a statue that represents you? What's the big issue with that? And I would say there's a couple uh, reasons why, but let me give you the most important one that I believe. I believe the most important reason that we're called not to make images of God is because God's image is not revealed to us. Listen to what Deuteronomy 4.15 says, because it gives us context to what the Israelites were going through. Deuteronomy 4.15 says this, so watch yourselves carefully, since you did not see any form on the day the Lord spoke to you. Let me read it again. You may have missed it. Watch yourselves carefully, since you did not see any form on the day the Lord spoke to you at Horeb, which is a mountain, from the midst of the fire, so that you do not, here's the reason, he's saying, you didn't see me in any form, watch yourselves, because if you don't watch yourselves, you will do this. You'll do what? You will act corruptly and make a graven image for yourself in the form of any figure. John 4:24 says, God is spirit. God is spirit. And whenever we define something that God hasn't defined, we cor we can corrupt it, especially when it regards God himself. Let me say that again. Whenever we define something that God hasn't defined, we can corrupt it. We don't know what God looks like. God is spirit. So for you and I as humans to try to create some type of image of the God who is spirit is trying to define God in a way that he hasn't defined himself. And images hold power. Symbols hold power. Images and symbols communicate something to us. And if we were to, in our own image, create uh, the image of God who is spirit in some type of physical thing, we would be defining God in a way that he has not defined himself. See, God is spirit and chooses to reveal himself through his word to humanity. The other thing is that, the other reason why is this, is that God is infinite and has infinite glory and is infinite in everything that he is and cannot be properly captured in finite things. There is nothing that we as humans can create in a physical realm that will fully capture and properly capture 
the infinite God. There is nothing that we can craft with gold or marble or the finest and most precious materials we have on earth that will correctly and properly capture the image of God in a way that is honoring to him. God is so much bigger, greater, beyond. He's incomprehensible. We cannot even fully understand God beyond what he has revealed to us. And so for us to try to create an image or a picture of God in finite things is ultimately dishonoring to the God who is infinite. And let me say this, God has a problem when we think, listen to this, this is super important, when we think or act is if man-made items or objects can bring us closer to God, can represent God, or can establish a connection with God. When I was in Israel, we went to this, um, we went to the old city, and in the old city is a lot of, it's really basically where uh, one of the key places that Jesus visited, it's, it's old, the old city, and you go into it, and one of the most famous things in the old city is the Western Wall, right? Maybe you've seen a picture of the Western Wall. The Western Wall, it's the outside retaining wall of the former temple. And people will go there. When you go there at all different times, you'll see uh, uh, Orthodox Jews. You'll see them, they, they have like a motion like this with their tassels and they're praying. And a bunch of foreigners and visitors will come as well, and they'll come up to this retaining wall, and they'll put notes of prayer in it. And I saw a couple of these, and I'll give you one more example. And I, man, the city has so much historic value, and it's so amazing. Some people, there's these steps that Jesus walked on, and so some people will walk, walk like this. And then they'll turn because they want to say, I stepped where Jesus stepped, which is cool. And it's funny. And it's like, okay, that's cool. I'm, I'm into that. But what this wall is, and I get it, what this wall is when people come to this wall and they're putting their prayers in it, a lot of people are believing because this is the place of the temple that was closest to the Holy of Holies and it's the biggest, best symbol of kind of God's presence that if we come to it and stick our prayers in it or pray in front of it, then we have a special connection and relationship with God that you can only get if you're right by this wall. That's called making an image of God even in a wall, that this physical wall, this physical thing has a special presence or anointing of God, so my prayers are more likely to get answered if I stick my prayer into the little cracks between the walls, and there's thousands of prayers that they have to have people come and take them out because people believe there's a closer connection to God here. Let me, let me speak clearly to you Christians. God left the temple a long time ago and split the temple. If you read in scripture, one of the things that's not often mentioned in scripture, but it's an interest, interesting insight, 
is that the temple had a huge curtain dividing the holy of holies. And when Jesus died, read this in the gospels, you'll see it there. God split the curtain, but he didn't split the curtain from the bottom up. He split the curtain from the top down, symbolizing to us that God made a, a divide, made a difference, opened the gate to you and I as Christians having access to the holy of holy, closest presence that we can have to God, not in a physical building, but by the power of his spirit, because his spirit lives within us and we are the walking temples of God. And I would walk around Israel. One of the amazing things that I loved about Israel is I would learn so many things, be at the Sea of Galilee and test out if I could walk on water too. No, I'm just kidding. And all these cool sights, but one of the most sad sights that I went to, uh, you know, I, I, you know uh, kind of symbolizing kind of how people can really falsely understand and not understand at all what Jesus came to do is where Jesus' body was laid. And you go into this place called the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. And you go into this church and it's like the whole, one of the quote unquote holiest places that you can go in Israel. And uh, when you walk into the entrances, these grand entrances, this old, old church that's run by three different groups. When you walk into this place, people, there's a, there's a slab of stone that's there. Maybe, maybe about this big right there at the entrance. It doesn't come much off the ground like this. And, and people come into the ground they're weeping and kissing. The thing you do is you go up to the stone and you kiss the stone. You weep over people washing it with their hair. And there's a sense of this stone has some power because Jesus' body was laid on it. And, and if we kiss it, there's some type of close connection with God because this item right here, can I tell you what that is? It's a graven image. It's something that we think brings us extra connection and closeness to God, not realizing that the power and work of the Holy Spirit is so that God can be with us at all times and all places, that we don't have to take a yearly journey to Israel to have a close presence with God because we need to get close to the temple, but that he has given us access. What the Bible says, we can boldly come into the throne room of God because of what Jesus has done on the cross. You and I have access. And any time that we have a shrine, a statue, a picture, a cross that holds special religious significance in our mind, and we think that we either have a closer connection with God or it represents God or we're closer to God, if you really feel like, hey, I got this big job interview and I'm gonna pray, but you have a cross around your neck, which I have a cross, but you have a cross around your neck, but right before your job interview, you just rub it because you think, I'm just gonna rub this one more time. This is kind of, <laughs> you pray your prayer, God, I, I wanna get this job. You're doing well so far. Help me with this, let it go well. But then you, 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 rub, you rub the little cross or a little, little something, a little cross in your pocket and you think that's gonna give me extra favor with God. Can I tell you, grave an image. You have given something significance and you have given something adoration that only God deserves. Because God is spirit. 
God is not bound by physical things. And God has revealed himself through his word, through the Bible. But God demands that he may not be pictured, that he is not visually represented. It requires us to solely conceive of God as he is described in his word. So we worship, and I want you to write this down because I'm gonna fly through these last ones. Write this down if you're taking notes. We worship God the way he wants. Write that down. It's important to, remember, to understand the second commandment. We worship God the way he wants. Not the way that we see our neighbor doing it. Not the way that other religions do it. Not the way that, uh, you know, feel, the way we feel like it should be done. We worship God the way he wants. But then secondly, and these are going to go quicker, we worship God the way he is. This is important. It's not just we worship God the way he wants, but we also worship God the way he is. There is a tendency today to seek to worship God the way that we want to or the way that, uh, in a way that really doesn't represent God accurately. There's a whole generation, and this is so prevalent, I have so many conversations like this today, especially with young people, who want to worship God in their own image. And I want to bring this to your attention because Exodus that we read here in Exodus 32 and also Exodus 20, it talks about they made for themselves, or if you read in Exodus 20, it says, you shall not make for yourself a carved image. But I'd like to bring your attention that idolatry doesn't need to just happen in the physical realm by making things, but we can also make idols in our mind when we make God in our own image in our mind. He is not the God of our making or our imagination or even the God of our own discovery. Rather, he is the God who reveals himself to us, not only in his world, but also in his word. God de defines himself by his word. We do not define God. Let me tell you ways that people say this today. Well, we can think about God however we want to think about God. Or maybe that's the way that you think about God, but I think about God in a different way. Or, well, I don't really like to think about God that way. I like to think about God another way. Not only you say, well, I don't have any, you know, statue in my house or picture in my house, but let me ask you this. What's the picture in your mind of God? If I was to have you describe who God is and we were to write him down on a piece of paper and some of the, some of the attributes and things that you believe about God, and then we were to pull the Bible up and put the Bible right next to that list, 
How accurately portrayed and how accurate is your mental picture and understanding of who God is in comparison to scripture? Sometimes we like to cut and paste God. We read scripture, we hear something about God, we hear something preached about God, and go, man, God, I really love, I really, really like the loving parts of you, God. But the part where you tell me I can't sleep around, cut, 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 cut. Take that out, put that over here. This is my God. God tells you, hey, you gotta be a generous giver because I'm a generous giver and this is the way I've called you to live. Ooh, I don't like that. Snip, 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 cut, 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 cut. Take that generosity, put that over here. I want the loving, the kind, the nice. Uh, God is an all-consuming fire. Ah, all-consuming fire. I like nice little baby Jesus in my mind, you know, right in the, is that Nazareth, you know, Nazareth and Bethlehem and kind of young Jesus. That's how I like to think of Jesus. Kind of like huggable and nice and close to me. And hey, Jesus, good to see you, you know. And I just kind of like Jesus like that. All consuming fire, snip, 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 cut out, uh, put that over here. Um, Jesus defines marriage in the New Testament. Jesus defines marriage in the New Testament as being between a man and a woman. I don't like that. Culture doesn't like that. Snip, 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 snip. Take that, put that over here. I like this God. Not as much response to that one. And there's things that culturally can come into our mind and start to shape God in the way that we want to think about God or the way that we want to shape God in our mind that we don't like, that's uncomfortable, that, that's you know, not popular uh, opinion with other people. But you know what? We snip, 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 cut away, and we copy and paste till we have a God who isn't God. And you end up saying, yeah, I got a close relationship with God, but you're following a God that you've made in your own image. You're not following the God of the Bible. You're following a God that's an idol in your mind of something that's easy to follow, that doesn't require a lot of you, that always agrees with all the things that you're doing in life, but you're not following the God of the Bible. Just as much as we can create a graven image of God in, in a physical realm, we can also create an image of God that we define in our own mind that is not a true representation of God. And just as I said earlier, whenever we define something that God hasn't defined, we can corrupt it. Let me say an even more powerful statement. Whenever we redefine Whenever we redefine something that God has defined, we guaranteed corrupt it. Anytime that you take something that God absolutely has clarified about himself or about the truth 
or about scripture or about anything that's relating or, or pertaining to him or the people that we're called to be. And we, we say, you know what? I, I know God's saying, but I'd like to redefine that. Um, you know, the Bible was different back then when they wrote that. Can I tell you something? I hear that statement all the time. Can I put that statement in context? Well, you know, that was different back then. If it's truth, truth doesn't change. If it's truth, I heard somebody say, uh, I read something recently that says, well, we just got to evolve to the times, talking to scripture. We just got to evolve scripture to the time. For us to evolve scripture to the time would mean that it does, it's not scripture. For, for, for us to pick and choose in the Bible to say, these are the things that God said and these are the things that didn't, or these are things that are from an older time and they're not relevant now so we can scrap them, is to put yourself in the position of God. Is to put yourself in the position of God. Idolatry. God that is self. And there's things that we come to in scripture and it's why we need to be diligent in studying scripture. We say, God, um, I may not like this. I may wrestle with this, but you know what? I'm putting myself beneath you, under you. You are God, I am not. And I'm not gonna cut and paste things that I don't like that you've revealed about yourself and take them off and kind of explain them away. And I'm not gonna cut and paste things that are in scripture and take them off and throw them away because your scripture and you, you never change. And what your scripture says about yourself, how you define yourself, God, how you self-define yourself is you never change yesterday, today, or forever. And if you don't change, God, then I know your word doesn't change. And if you don't make mistakes, God, then I know that makes you God. And if you don't make mistakes, then your word doesn't change. God's word is unchanging like he is unchanging. It's the same yesterday, Today, let me say, it's the same 2,000 years ago, 5,000 years ago, 1,000 years ago, 500 years ago, as it is today, as it is a million years into the future. God's scripture is holy, and God will not be defined by humans. God defines himself. And let me say this, as heavy as that may be, Find so much solace in that. Find so much encouragement in that, that God doesn't change, but his character remains the same. Find so much comfort in the fact that when you are discouraged, you can come to the word of God and you can find out how God defines himself. Some people just have bad uh, definitions or understanding of God because they don't know his scripture and they've only heard things about God and they have this really distorted, cut and paste version of God that's not even a biblical version of God and they're like, how can I follow that God that just wants to send people to hell? I don't want anything to do with it. And I'm like, you don't know the scripture. Because in scripture, it says God desires that no one would go to hell. But God is also just. And I go to the word and it defines God's love for me. That I don't have to make it up in my mind or fabricate how much God loves me, but I go to scripture and I know how much he loves me. When I go and I open up the word of God and I see that he says, He's the God. Think about how he self-defines himself. Not 
just the God of power, but the God of comfort, that he comforts us in our times when we need him to be close. That's how he defines himself. Do you know in Exodus, he defines himself as gracious and merciful? That's how he's defining himself. He's saying, I'm the God who is gracious and merciful. This is who I am. I can't change. I won't change. I'm the God who's gracious and merciful. I'm the God who's faithful. Even when you failed me a thousand times, look at the story of Israel and how many times they ran away from God and failed God. And yet God said, I am faithful to my word. God is defining himself as faithful, as a giver. In James, it says, it talks about when you're going through trials that you can come to God, approach God, and ask God for the thing that we need most in, tri most in trials. You can ask God for wisdom. And God defines himself by saying, and I will generously give it to you without even finding fault. I'm not gonna look for fault. I'm just gonna give it to you generously because I'm generous. It's who I am. I'm defining myself. I want you to know who I am. That's why I've given you all this scripture so that you can understand my heart. I want you to know me. I want you to understand what I've done for you. My actions speak about who I am. Don't define me by what other people say about me. Define me by, by what I say about myself. And I love how in the next verse, verse five, God defines himself. And I'm just gonna hit on it very briefly, just very, very quickly, because I don't wanna leave you without confusion. Because if you read this in verse five, let me just read it for you so you can ask your own questions in your mind. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, right? Created images. For I, the Lord your God, he's defining himself. Listen to this. And this is one of the reasons that Oprah has self-proclaimed that she was like turned off to Christianity. Listen to God, how he self-defines himself. This is a weird one and I'll explain it to you. You shall not bow down to them or to worship them for I, for I, defining myself, the Lord your God, here it is, am a jealous God. I don't know about you, I, it's not one of the first definitions I think of God as, as jealous. And he says, punishing the children for the sins of their parents to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commands. And I could go really in depth on this, but I'm gonna go really light because I wanna give you explanations, but I don't wanna leave you stranded, okay? So jealous God, this is the easiest way to understand what God's talking about here is God is, think about it in the relationship or the context not of the way we think about it as jealousy can be a very negative and bad thing, but think about it kind of in the, word, uh, in the way mixed with the word zealous of how a husband feels for his wife. Specifically how a husband would feel for his wife if his wife was cheating or spending a lot of time with another man. God is saying, listen, I'm defining myself to you. I want you so much that when your heart strays and goes after other idols, I get jealous. But not jealous in a bad way where it's like, I, I, I'm, I'm jealous or I want something that doesn't belong to me, but jealous for something that does belong to him. 
He's saying, for a husband to say, if, if my wife was spending a lot of time with another man and, and to whatever extent, and I said, well, I come back and I was getting jealous of her spending too much time with another man. And I felt like, well, where are you? Why, why aren't you spending time with me? And I was to tell you about this in a one-on-one -on -one conversation to say, I, I, I'm jealous. I want my wife to myself, but we, we're in a relationship. You wouldn't say, well, that's really bad. That's really negative. You just got to let her do what she needs to do. I hope you wouldn't say that. You'd say, you know what? Absolutely. You guys, have, you guys are in a relationship, a marriage covenant together, where you guys have decided that you guys are going to be in a relationship with one another for, till death do you part. You know what? You should have a close relationship with your wife. You should be near to your wife. You should be jealous if your wife is spending time with another man. You know why? Because she's yours and, you're, uh, and, and, he, and you are hers. It's that type of relationship that God is defining himself. Think about the love that God has for you, that God says, when you turn to other things, when you turn to other people and make them idols, you turn to money and you make them idols, or you turn to other things, when you make graven images, that there's a jealousy for you. That's how much I want you. I don't want a little bit of you. I want all of you. And if any part of you is given to something else, I want that part. That's how much God loves and once you, in this next verse here, people think, okay, well, there's a lot of math in this next verse because if I got to think about the sins that I did that affect all my three, four generations, but then if I, you know, if I, you know, if I love God, then there's a thousand generations. Real simple. Real simple explanation for this verse right here that talks about um, punishing the children for the sins of their parents of the parents to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me. What it's talking about is when we live a sinful lifestyle, when we live apart from God, when we live in the wrong way, there's consequences that come along with those actions and that pattern of sin or lifestyle often gets passed down to the next generation and the next generation and the next generation and the next generation. Some of you in this room, the battles that you are fighting right now were battles that were started by your parents and your grandparents and your great-grandparents of infidelity that you are now by the power of God breaking the cycles in your family. And there are consequences that come along with sin always, right? When we make the wrong decisions, there's always consequences. That's what God is referring to here. He's saying there's always punishment. There's always consequences that come along with action. But for those, he's saying specifically to those who hate me. But when, you know, you may have had your grandparent may have been the most staunch atheist, hate God, and, uh, you know, and lived a, a life that was so, so far from God and, and wrong and this and that. But you know what? When you made a decision to follow Jesus, that second verse applies to you but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commands. Love covers over a multitude of sins is what the New Testament talks about. God covers over. There's a blessing that comes into your life. Just like the parents who live wrong oftentimes pass on patterns of generational sin down to their kids, the parents who live faithfully and right and commit themselves to God, whether single or together, pass on those same type of blessing where there's patterns of blessing and, and lifestyle that gets passed down to your kids and your kids are able to see, that's the life I wanna live. That's the pattern. I wanna follow after mom and dad's example of how they followed Jesus because they were authentic. They weren't perfect, but they were authentic. They were real. They struggled, but they chased after Jesus and that blessing goes and follows you but it's all about, and I have the time to get into it, but there's a verse in Ezekiel that defines it that I'll share next service, but there's a verse in Ezekiel, specifically Ezekiel 18, verses 11 and 13, 
that, that talks about the son will not be punished for the sins of the parent. Just to keep it really simple, the, sin, the son or the children won't be punished for the sins of the parent. Doesn't mean you can't pass down those patterns. Ezekiel 18, verses 11 through 13. Can I go three more minutes? Can I go just three more? Just three more. I, some of you are saying, Pastor, keep going. Just three more, just three minutes. Stick with me. The last and final, I'll go through this, but it's just, I, I feel like if I didn't preach this, it wasn't worth preaching the whole sermon. The, the final point is this. We worship God the way he came. We worship God the way he came. And, you know, Jesus There's a power surge going on in this building or something. You know, Jesus, God knew he needed to make a way for broken people like us to set the captives free. And so he sent his son, born of a virgin. Jesus' existence didn't start in the womb of his mother. He always existed, but God sent him down. He sent his son down in flesh, born of a virgin by the power of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus lived the perfect, incredible life. But I want to tie it into Exodus because it's so important because Jesus is the fulfillment of the second commandment. Jesus is the fulfillment of the image of God. And let me let scripture define Jesus. Colossians 1.5 says the son, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. And Colossians 1 19 through 20 tells us the purpose for why Jesus came to the earth. Why God came in flesh on earth is this. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Jesus. Anybody ever says, I don't really know if Jesus is God. The image of the invisible God, all his fullness, everything that God is in Jesus. All the fullness of God Almighty himself in Jesus the Son, and through him, what was the purpose? Through Jesus to reconcile or to make right himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, how did Jesus make a way to peace with God? By making peace through his blood shed on the cross. And I'll read this quote to finish. This is by a pastor in England. His name is, uh, I believe it's Ed Young. I was reading his book. To look upon Christ was to look upon the face of him who could not be seen at Mount Sinai. Jesus did the seemingly impossible. He allowed humans to see the God who cannot be seen. That's the mystery and the majesty of the incarnation. We don't need pictures. We don't need statues. We don't need icons. We have the icon. Christ, the image of the invisible God. And we see that in Colossians 1.15. Would you rise with me? Scripture defines God. You can understand who God is and read Scripture to understand who he is so that you don't come up with some or I don't come up with some idea in my mind that is not truthful to who God is. 
We don't want to make an idol in our mind of something that looks nothing like the God of the Bible. It just looks like a God that we've created that's, we can wrap our mind around. If you can wrap your mind around God, it's not the God of the Bible. And if you're not a Christian and you're here today and you come from some other lifestyle, some other frame of thinking, some other worldview, then you're here today and you have some special possessions and things that people gave to you, an old box by this person, an old thing by that, a cross here, or this there, a little Buddha statue here, and, and you think that this somehow connects you to God and so you're trying to cover all your bases by using all these different things, can I tell you? There's rest found in Jesus. You don't need statues. You don't need icons. You don't need pictures. The fulfillment of the second commandment came in Jesus, who is God walking on earth in human flesh, fully God and fully man. And he died on the cross for us to give us a relationship with him. And so if that's something you're contemplating, you hear for whatever reason today you heard and you understood that Jesus was God and, and you're here and you want to put your faith and your trust in him, you're in a room full of people that one day in their life they made a decision to put Jesus, to, that Jesus, they made a decision one day that Jesus was Lord and that they wanted to make him their savior of their life, to save them from all the mess that they lived, just like me. And if you're here today, whether you're with people or you're not pe without people, let me just say this. You can make a decision today that can give you a relationship with God and wash you of all the things you've ever done wrong. We don't have any statue for you to touch. We don't have any picture for you to kiss. We don't have any cross for you to rub. It's not about that. God is spirit. But the Bible says he's here right now. And you can connect and make a decision right now in this moment to make Jesus your Lord and Savior, and you can have a new relationship with God, a close relationship with God where you don't need physical things because God is with you at all times and in all places. And so I simply want to just make an altar call. I don't know if there's one person or two people or nobody in the room, but if anybody in this room right now has just, a, a, there's a prompting in your, in your being that you are, in your being that you are, and you know that you need to put your trust and your faith in Jesus, I just can't go a service without making a call like that because I want you to know the God who defines himself and defines himself by love and is calling you to him. And so I'm just gonna ask really boldly, this is a bold step, um, but you're in a room full of people who are, who are gonna be cheering and applauding you. But if that's you, I'm not even gonna ask you to raise your hand. I'm just gonna ask you to step out of your seat and come forward. I want you to come right in front of me and I wanna have a conversation with you. If you know today, there may not be anybody, there may be a couple of people in this room, don't wait. If that's you, come forward, because we're gonna move on. But if that's you, I want you to come forward, absolutely. Absolutely, yep, yep. Great to meet you, great to meet you, yep. If there's anybody else, I'm gonna close the door in a second, but if there's anybody else that says, when the Lord's knocking, respond, that's all we can do. Yep, absolutely. Come on, come on forward. Yep, great to meet you. Praise God, yep. Absolutely. Yep, hey, great to meet you. Pleasure. This is why we do what we do. Jesus didn't come to make good people better. He came to make dead people alive. And we believe that 
right now that you guys can be transformed and forgiven by the power of God, that you're in a room full of people who, who desperately need God every single day because on our own, we couldn't transform our actions or who we are. But by the power of God, he transforms us and he cleans us. And we're all on a journey. There's a bunch of people in this room who are on a journey. But let me tell you this, it happens in a moment. There's no action, it's no magical prayer, but there's just a heart that comes before God that says, God, I realized it. I sinned, I blew it. And I need you to wash me and I'm gonna give you my life. Whatever I have of my life, I'm gonna give to you. And, um, and God is able, he's the only one who's able to do it, but he's able to forgive you on the spot of your sins to put his Holy Spirit himself inside of you and your life will never be, your, your life will never be the same, but it's an amazing thing and we're here to do this moment with you guys, okay? So it's not, I'm gonna, I'm gonna lead you in a prayer, but, but it's nothing magical about this prayer, it's about the sincerity of your heart that you're making. Can I ask you to do this if you're comfortable and maybe you're not able, could you, could you kneel down if you're, if you're able? You're able to kneel down just as a sign of surrender and humility before God and we're gonna pray with you. And would you extend your hands just in the room as we support these decisions being made? And I'm gonna lead you, but once again, it's, it's the decision you're making in your heart that confirms it right here on the spot. And so you can pray this, you can repeat after me, you can put it in your own words, but you can say, just God, I heard you today. And I haven't lived a, a pure life. I know I've blown it. But I heard what you said today, that you made a way through Jesus and you can forgive me of my sins. You can wash me clean here on the spot. And today I choose to follow you. You were not just a man, but you were God. And I give you my life. Bring your Holy Spirit in me. And we pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. I'll be here to talk with you guys. You also have a prayer partner behind you. I'll be here in a moment. Hey, we're going to finish with a worship song. Let's praise God for what he's doing amongst us, um, leading people to him. Let's sing.